Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow-your-own-food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Sean Yadnicek to talk about his experience with the bio-integrated farm. Sean has nourished his interest in sustainability through work as an organic farmer, nursery grower, extension agent, arborist, and landscaper, and now as the manager of Clemson University's student organic farm. From his earliest permaculture experiments with no-till farming in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California to his highly functional bio-integrated designs in the southeast, Sean has learned how to cultivate food in a variety of climates and landscapes. He shares his creative solutions through teaching, consulting, design work, and his book, The Bio-Integrated Farm, a revolutionary permaculture-based system using greenhouses, ponds, compost piles, aquaponics, chickens, and more, published by Chelsea Green. Welcome to the show today, Sean. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at? Yeah, I guess I started getting interested in plants while I was in college about 20 years ago. Soon afterwards, moved to the West Coast. I was, I was in Virginia. Moved to the West Coast and started farming and a nursery business there with a friend. And did that for about seven years and then realized it was too expensive on the West Coast. Came back to the East Coast where I had the opportunity to work as an extension agent 
for Clemson University, and that was just a great, you know, learning opportunity. Oh, that. Yeah, so answer people's questions, and then I got to basically do a lot of research and um, education for myself and for other people during that process, so that was really fun, and then the opportunity became available to become the farm manager for the organic farm at Clemson University, so jumped on that. It's been even more fun than being an extension agent because now I get to, you know, explore all these hands-on opportunities and actually do the demonstrations and do the farming myself, so it's been fun. Wow, cool. So for those of our listeners that don't know what an extension agent is, tell us, would you? Yeah, basically it's the it's the educational arm of the research of the of the university or basically bringing the knowledge that's developed at the university and trying to make that available for the public. So it's working with a lot of homeowners and landowners to help them, you know, solve different problems and educate them on environmental solutions and um, basically you know, helping them grow plants and maintain animals. And there's like a whole food health issue, food safety aspect to the extension work as well and community development. So they cover a large area with a horticulture agent. So I worked with mainly plants. Nice, 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 nice. So I have here in my hand and Chelsea Green was very nice to send me a copy of it. It's called The Bio-Integrated Farm. This is your book, and it is a absolutely beautiful book. Could you kind of give us a sense of how it came to be? Yeah, you know, I've been doing permaculture designs for almost 20 years now, and I noticed that when I did a design that was highly functional, when I had like a component in the farm or the landscape, like a water garden, a greenhouse, or a chicken coop, and that component performed at least seven functions, I felt like something really special happened that that component would kind of like become alive and take on a life of its own. So I gave that quality a a name and I called it biointegration. So it's kind of derived from uh, Bill Mollison's definition of permaculture design, Uh where he basically says that, you know, if you have this pattern, this design pattern that functions to benefit life, then that's basically what permaculture design is. It's basically about creating these patterns that function. And then, um, of course, he goes on to state that, you know, every component should serve many functions. And then it's kind of a take on that. And I try to create these components that serve seven functions. And I felt like they're pretty amazing and they save me a lot of time and energy. So I wanted to share them with other people. And I also wanted other people to create these highly functional designs. So um, put the book together. Nice. So you said something that that is, I know what it means, but it's curious. You said... Everything performed seven functions. First of all, did you pick seven on purpose? Yeah, there is. I felt like there's a lot of mysticism that goes around the, the number seven. Yep, good. And I don't fully understand all of it. Uh, since there's so much mysticism and I felt like I, you know, I could tell that there was a change that happened when these things became um, that functional. Um, it just seemed like the natural, the natural way to go. Yeah. So tell us what that means perform seven functions and then give us one example on your bio integrated farm of something that does that so we can kind of see it in action would you yeah sure so yeah for example you know you take like a a water garden at a house i'd have a water garden and how can you add functions to that water garden i'll take a normal water, water garden and i'll place it on the on the south side of the building south side is the sunny side of the building um, that receives a lot of sunlight in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. 
And then if you place it at the right location, at the right distance from the building in relation to the height of the windows, you can get that palm light to reflect sunlight into that building only during the cool time of the year, positioned in a way where it doesn't reflect any sunlight into the building during the hot time of the year. Oh, beautiful. And then you can use that pond. Yeah, you can use the pond to basically heat your house. You can do things like raise the pond up above grade with all these berms uh-huh. to, to basically, and that creates a bunch of different slope angles that then create microclimate. So if you design your pond properly, you can get up to about 16 different microclimates, and then that will allow you to grow a whole di- large diversity of plants in a very small area. And then I take these ponds and I want to stack more functions onto them. So I'll use them to grow mosquito fish and then I'll feed those mosquito fish to my chickens. So it's a a food source for chickens. Mm -hmm. And then I'll grow edible plants around them and all the different microclimates. And so it becomes a food source for me. And then I'll use them for harvesting rainwater off of roofs and parking lots. So then they're, you know, preventing stormwater runoff. And then you can also use them to grow uh, frogs and and minnows that then disperse in the landscape and control pests for you. You can use them to, to grow dragonfly larvae, dragonflies, which will also control pests. So it's just so many aspects and so many functions that you can get these ponds to do. And then every function that they do, then the less work you have to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that, that's what I love about permaculture is its intention that you build workers into your space. I call it, on my end, I call it being a lazy gardener. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, get nature to do the work for you. Right, exactly. Give us one more example of something that you've stacked functions with on your bio-integrated Oh, farm. yeah, I've got um, different greenhouse systems and chicken systems. But the, but the chicken systems, I connect those to, I connect like a chicken roost to the rainwater harvesting systems. And then you can use the rainwater harvesting systems to flush manure from out under the coops, and then um, I channel that nutrient-rich water through the landscape and these diversion channels, so you can basically turn a valve and, and clean your coop, irrigate the landscape, and fertilize it all at once. And then um, oh, that's beautiful. Connect, uh, yeah, then connect uh, different rotational systems to your coop, so you can use the chickens to, to mow vegetation or control vegetation and um, control insect pests. So. Yeah, just uh, all kinds of stuff, fun stuff you can do with those nice. chickens. Connect them to the neighborhoods and yeah. buy eggs for your friends <laughs> so much. They love that. They love that. So I want to start with the title of your book. What is a bio-integrated farm? Yeah, so bio-integrated farm is when you have a whole bunch of components on your farm, and every component on your farm is performing at least seven functions. And then you get all this synergistic between those. There's the synergism between those components. Your your farm becomes alive. It becomes bio-integrated. And you know, bio of course means life. It basically brings more life into your farm and into your farm by yeah. by having those functional connections. Beautiful. So there's a bunch of projects in this book, and you know, I get this a lot. I have an urban farm in Phoenix, Arizona. It's on a third of an acre, and there's solar on it, and I've got rainwater and graywater harvesting, and edible landscape and fruit trees and you know it goes on and chickens in our backyard it goes on and on and on and I often get this question which I'm going to ask you and that's where does somebody start with all of this yeah it's a really good question I think the best place to start is on a piece of paper you know getting the design down on paper 
because it's a lot easier to make mistakes there than actually moving stuff around and doing it and then having to redo it in the landscape. Yeah. So I always recommend, you know, getting on paper and then that'll allow you to, to basically see some functional connections that you might not have seen before because you have this bird's eye view of your landscape. So yeah, getting it on paper and making those changes on paper before you do it in the landscape is really the best place to start. And um, when I'm doing a design, I like to start with, you know, the buildings, the roads, and the pathways, and the rainwater harvesting. Mm. If you can get all those to work together, mm-hmm. you know, put your buildings on high place, places and ridges, put your main access roads and pathways on those ridges so they'll stay dry, and then, um, you know, look at how water is going to flow through your landscape and off of buildings and fields and roads, and then how you can harvest that water and use that in the landscape as best you can. If you can get that good backbone down from the beginning and get it on paper, then everything else will kind of fit together really easily later on. Yeah. Cool. What's one of your favorite processes in the book that you talk about? Hmm. Ah, One of my favorite things to do is actually probably make compost. Mm -hmm. And we've developed these, heat extraction systems, we extract heat in about three different ways from our compost, actually four different ways from our compost piles. And then we use that heat to heat our greenhouses and heat freshwater prawn production ponds or nursery ponds. It's always fun and exciting to, to work with compost piles because it's like this giant beast that um, sometimes has a life of its own. Yeah. So with all the complexities in the systems of these designs, does somebody have to have special skills to do this or, you know, how do we come about them and, and how, yeah, where do we find them? Yeah. I mean, every time you do something new, chickens, bees, vegetable gardens, I mean, it's always going to be a new skill set. That's the fun part about it is, you know, experimenting and learning new things and, failing and getting to do it all over again. It's, it's the fun part of life. Yeah, I mean, if I don't have the skills, skill set, I'll usually, you know, find someone that will mentor me or start small. So if I do make a mistake, it won't mm-hmm. be a big mistake. And then, um, but yeah, definitely getting help along the way. Yeah. As much help as possible is always a good idea. Build your community around you. Yeah. Absolutely. I know one of the things that uh, happens here in Phoenix is they call them, I guess, perma blitzes, you know, permaculture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, you basically it's the old notion of barn raising, you know, where you jump in and help a friend or community member do a project and then they come and help you. Uh, have you, but I guess you have community there at the college, right? Yeah. We do have a permaculture group and they do the perma blitzes and I've been meaning to get involved. I needed help at different times. Last time we did a big chicken slaughter, I really needed help um, and didn't have the network. But um, yes, I need to, to tie in with those people and get better connected with the community around me. I'm usually so busy growing food for the farm during the summertime, it's hard for me to get out. Yeah. But um, I got to do it in the wintertime when I have the time available. Right. So the food that you're growing on the farm, what's, what's happening mm-hmm. to it? Um, it goes most most of it goes to our CSA program. Oh, nice! Um, the size of that varies depending upon the labor that I have. Last year we had a hundred share CSA. Wow! It goes for twenty eight weeks out of the year. Yeah, we feed a lot of families, and then um, we also do a little bit of wholesaling and a little bit of retail. 
to farmers markets as well. Yeah. Excellent. So okay. on a smaller scale, which of the projects in the book are best for homesteaders to try? seems like maybe raising chickens might be a great place to start. Yeah, I have a chapter on chickens, which is pretty good for the for the homesteader scale. And it's kind of scale neutral. It could go larger or smaller, um, that chapter. And then I have a cool chapter with an urban project. I have two chapters with some urban projects that I did. One of them has some pretty cool designs where I, I created these basins next to driveways. Because I had this problem in that landscape where there was just this massive amount of leaf fall that occurred and leaves that build up on the driveway mm. and then um you know what do you do with those leaves you gather them up and then throw them away you know it's this valuable resource that you want to capture and use as, as best you can so how can how can you most effectively use that that resource of leaves so i created these basins along the edge of the driveways and i designed the basins so that they would basically hold a small amount of water and the leaves would fill those basins and they basically attracted these earthworms and the earthworms would come in and they'd shred the leaves up and turn it into these nice castings. And then um, whenever you need earthworm castings, you could basically pull the leaves back and then scoop up the castings. Tie that into this uh, wicking hydroponic system where you could basically put these pots in the basins and they would wick water up. And then nice. um, you wouldn't have to fertilize or irrigate those plants as much. Yeah. And then connecting the that whole system to rainwater harvesting systems so you could use those to basically flush the leaves off the driveway into the basins and then irrigate the earthworm beds and the plants all at once. Wow, you've thought this well through. Congratulations, that's great. It's fun. It always just, you know, you just add things on as you go. Yeah. And I think that that's a that's a key piece of what you just said. Uh, I always tell people to start small and then when you're successful at one thing, add more to it. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that way we don't get overwhelmed. Saves a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, it saves a lot of time and makes it manageable. Yeah. So here's an interesting question for you. Once you've designed and built a system, does it take on a life of its own, and does it continue to change and refine? Yeah, I think that's the real test of a good design. You know, can it basically manage itself through time? And, you know, all... I think all designs are going to need some human input, but, um, you know, the least amount of human input, you can still have a design function properly. Mm -hmm. Um, That's always the ideal. I have had a few designs where they've been completely abandoned and you come back and they're even better. There's more food. (laughs) Um, Things are still functioning. You know, water is still harvesting itself and the plants are still irrigating themselves with the harvested water and fish are growing. Mushrooms are growing. Plants are happy nutrients are recycled so if you can get a system to basically function with hardly any human input that's like ideal difficult to achieve but is possible it's amazing what happens when we let nature be isn't it Mm. yeah it can become a a thick forest pretty quickly yeah can you give an example in your book of a system that evolved over time yeah i had a house and little town called Walterboro in South Carolina and basically you know after we we built and designed after I designed and built the landscape abandoned the house for about six years and rented it out it did require some a a little bit of maintenance but I think the renters that were living there were really inspired by the landscape and they all kind of fell in love with it even though a lot of them weren't 
you know, interested in plants to begin with or, or the fish that were growing there to begin with, but they all kind of I fell in love with it and then became active in the landscape and started loving it and maintaining it. So it was almost like changing the people that lived in the house and nice. uh, making those people more likely to maintain the landscape. And yeah. then, of course, the landscape was also evolving at the same time where, you know, the fruit trees were growing and the the, the fish were doing their thing and repopulating the pond. And, and every time I went there, there was always this abundance of stuff to harvest. So it was fun to go back and maintain the house because I could, I could always harvest some kind of food there. Good job. And I guess that's really the point. This is the whole point of all of all of bio-integrated and all of permaculture. It's how do we put these systems in place so that they just live on their own? Yeah, yeah, self-sustaining, functioning systems. Yeah. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that ferry, and what you might have learned from it. Oh, seems like every time I do something new, I fail the first time. Let's see. Last failure, I've had some, been exploring and, and learning how to do a uh, technique called organic no-till. Mm. I'm sure a lot of your um, listeners are familiar with it, where you basically grow a cover crop up, and then you use this roller crimper, this giant steel drum with dull blades on it to um, lay that cover crop down yep. and basically kills the cover crop and leaves it in place. And I've been trying, um, um, we've been very successful doing it with winter cover crops that grow through the winter time and then we crimp them in the spring and then plant our summer crops. But I really want to be able to do it with summer cover crops for fall grown crops. And I just haven't, every time I try, I failed. I've been trying for several years now and I feel like I'm getting closer and then I take one step back and this summer we, you know, planted probably a quarter acre in cover crop of um, pearl millet and sun hemp. Hmm. And it was a beautiful cover crop, but the pearl millet didn't die, and it re-sprouted back up, and it was just a, a nightmare. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's always a challenge when you plant things that persist. <laughs> Got to be careful with that, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So, what do you consider your biggest success? Oh, probably some of our heat extraction techniques with compost piles. I think we've really been able to bring down the cost to extract the heat as well as we've developed some new systems to get the heat out mm-hmm. that, um, use recycled materials and and then um, storing the heat we use these shallow solar ponds inside greenhouses that allow us to store the heat real cheaply inside the greenhouses right. um, for use at night so i think some of our heat extraction and heat storage techniques are pretty novel and and, and fun yeah well, and i love how you are using that heat from the compost pile to, you said, heat your chicken house, right? No, don't don't use it to, to heat the chicken house, just um, to heat the greenhouses. But um, we heat these nursery ponds, and then we grow freshwater prawns. We raise them uh, to a juvenile stage inside uh-huh. the nursery ponds, which are inside the greenhouses, and that allows us to, to extend the growing season for those freshwater prawns. Oh, nice. Nice. I should ask you while we're while we're talking about it, freshwater prawns. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and I'm assuming they're like shrimp, right? Yeah, they're just exactly like shrimp, except they spend most of their life in freshwater mm-hmm. instead of saltwater. Uh, just a small part of their life, I guess, from about the egg stage, the post-larval stage, is, is spent in brackish water, mm-hmm. and then um, I guess in their native habitat. They would uh, swim down to those brackish waters, 
have, you know, the eggs would hatch and then swim back up river into the fresh water to spend uh, the rest of their life. All right. L- let me see how I do here. Is this a Macrobrachium Rosenbergi that you're raising? Exactly. Uh-huh. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, so yeah. don't ask me that one. No, that's okay. I, I raised those as a, as a kid here in Phoenix because they used to, in the 70s, they showed up in the fish stores as, you know, okay. aquarium pets, essentially. Uh, and we found very quickly that the, the males with their big claws would uh, love taking out other fish in the, in the aquarium. So we had to be careful about that. But after we discovered that and how big they got, because they'll get quite large, will they not? Yeah, they look like small lobsters and they're full grown. Yeah. How, yeah, I've seen them eat frogs and stuff in ponds. You'll see them just attacking them and pulling them down. It's yeah. pretty... They're pretty vicious. They eat each other too, so you gotta yeah, be careful. Exactly, and that that was the problem that we always ran into with them in the seventies and eighties was that, you know, they they were very territorial, so they all need a, sp- a specific amount of space. Otherwise, if you don't get that, there's, you know, they're going to take each other out. Essentially, how have you addressed that? Yes, yeah, we've been growing them to the juvenile stage in the greenhouse ponds. We've been pretty successful doing that, and then. We move them from there into larger grow-out ponds, and we have a half-acre pond where we grow them out where they have a lot of space, so we don't, you know, have them confined. We can give them enough space, and I just actually was rebuilding that pond this winter because we had a really extreme drought this year where it didn't rain almost all summer. We had three months without rain, mm. so uh, we were able to dry out this pond, which wasn't very usable before because it was too wet and wasn't able to drain effectively. Mm-hmm. So, but it was so dry this year, I was able to get in there and regrade it, rebuild the drain system. And so I'm looking forward to using it next year. It'll work a lot better for us. Oh, nice. Nice. And what do you do with all these prawns that you raise? Well, we can get enough. I'd like to sell them to our CSA members. Mm. We're still, you know, haven't been extremely successful at it at the grow out stage in the larger pond. So hopefully with our new pond repair next year, we'll have something for them. Beautiful. Beautiful. So what drives you? What drives me, I love exploring and doing new things. I'm always trying to do something new and creative. I guess the opportunity to, to develop something that, that's new and different and um, that will basically save people time and money. I'm all about being more efficient. Whenever I can find a way to do something that's more efficient and that saves me money, I get extremely excited. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's part of what drives me too. Is how can I do something better, more efficiently? Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the reasons I love permaculture and working with nature is because when we ob- stand back and observe nature, there's so much to watch. Oh yeah, amazing! You really you can't beat nature. It's like perfect already. Yeah. <laughs> so I love what you can learn from it. Yeah, I love what Toby Hemingway says. He says nature always bats last. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. So I'm all about education. I have to know, is there a book that's been influential for you in this process in your life? Yeah, probably one of my most favorite books is Christopher Alexander's Pattern Language. Whoa. That really changed. Yeah, it really blew my mind reading that book. No he developed kidding. The, the, yeah, the system of, you know, teaching design where he basically describes these functional patterns, how they can basically make your life better, make the world better. Mm-hmm. And then I guess my book tried to expand on that I, that whole concept by developing these 
patterns for farms and homesteads. Cool. I started in the mid 70s. I used to clean service and build fish ponds here in Phoenix. Uh, and at the same time, I was okay. studying aquaculture. You know, I, I early on in my life, about 20, almost 30 years ago, I discovered permaculture and I discovered the book, A Pattern Language. And in the middle of my life, I spent a lot of time in technology. I owned three different technology companies. I had a software company and so on and so on. And I was at one of my programmer's houses one day and sitting on his shelf was the book, A Pattern Language. And I, huh. and I, yeah, that, that was my first response. It's like, huh? So I asked him, I said, Jim, a pattern language. That's a permaculture design book. Basically what's it doing up there? And he said, Greg, I read that because I use it to write programming code. Wow. That's what that I said sense. too. I mean, yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. There's so many aspects to that. It's so useful. It's great. Yeah totally blew my mind and changed the way I do things. Every time I do design now, I love to look back at that book and try to incorporate as many of his patterns as possible. Nice. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Ooh, I guess don't be afraid to try new things, get out there and explore. Yeah. Don't be afraid to fail because those, those failures, that's those failures. You know, we, we have some, uh, successes there yeah you really have to embrace failure and just laugh at it and learn from it and then make it better the next time yeah yeah so i'm looking at the back of your book and i just do want to do a shout out here for you jerome ossentowski he's one of the first permaculture designers in the country uh, he really took it on early uh, and this is what he says about your book i just i did this was like cool the bio-integrated farm is an invaluable resource for market farmers, homesteaders, and serious gardeners who are interested in improving their relationship with the land. Sean's creative use of materials, animals, and space will inspire and teach you how to improve the efficiency and resiliency of your farm and garden. And Jerome is the author of The Forest Garden Greenhouse. That was uh, quite sweet of him to share that. Can you speak... As, right as we're signing off, can you speak about this word resiliency, what it means, and how how important it is to us? Yeah, I mean, I guess it what my it kind of reflects on what my father always taught me. You know, you always want to leave the the place you are better for the next people, and I think that's really the heart of resiliency. Is you know, how can we make this world a better place than it is today, and um, you know, constantly work towards that. Yeah. I, I like to compare resiliency to like a rubber band, uh, you know, uh, a resilient rubber band will stretch out and then it bounces back and a non-resilient yeah. one or an old one. And in many cases, this is what is happening with a lot of our uh, biological systems on this planet is there. We've got old rubber bands and they're not able to bounce back. Yeah bounce back in a better way well thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today sean it's been a treat getting to chat with you yeah thanks for having me greg i appreciate it absolutely so how can our listeners get a hold of you they can reach me at my email it's s j a b r n i c e k 
at gmail.com. Perfect. And you can find information on the bio-integrated farm on Chelsea Green's website. And you can find the show notes of today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash bio-integrated. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast, but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.